Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. The first Gilded Age was a time of rampant corruption. The big business crooks of Tammany Hall and lavish displays of wealth rivaled by abject poverty. It was also the period when America's elite mastered the art of crafting the perfect cocktail. Though there were a few missteps along the way, including the black velvet, equal parts champagne and disturbingly porter, the era birthed the classic cocktails that we drink to this day. But what parties, what people were around for the debut of the Manhattan? Or the Martini, the Daiquiri, the Pisco Sour? Cecilia Tishy, professor of American literature and culture at Vanderbilt University, tells all in her new book, The Gilded Age of Cocktails. She's joining us for a happy hour interview from Tennessee to talk about all of the delightful concoctions and occasional exuberances that the ladies and gentlemen of the era were drinking. Thank you so much for talking to me, Cecilia. Well, what a great opportunity. I mean, I, I tuck my Phi Beta Kappa key deep in some uh, uh, felt bag, and here I am in the Smarty Pants ready to go. So what's Smarty Pants up to here? Well, Smarty Pants is currently drinking a Waldorf cocktail, which uh, <laughs> a recipe I got from your book. <laughs> okay. Well, you're, you're, a, you're a brave woman, Stephanie. <laughs> courage, courage. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> I was reminded that Gilded Age cocktails were a bit sweeter than our current palate prefers. And I think it may be because sugar was so much more widely available. Sugar cane from Cuba, from Hawaii, um, and in on the ships and railroaded all over the country. Sugar earlier in the 1800s, and you know this, if you go to an antique store, you might be shown a sugar safe, literally, lock and key, and the sugar in a loaf, very carefully rationed. Well, came the Gilded Age, and the age of steam and steel and enterprise and energy, and voila, sugar was everywhere. And the upper class, the elites in their palate for the inventive cocktails, flavored with fruit and sugar. And then, uh, as is the case, those beverages filter down to the middle class, uh, and it was a kind of democratization of the cocktail. But we know that it really was the, the Gilded Age elite, say upper crust, or as Mrs. Astor said, the 400 meaning the number who would fit in her ballroom for her annual ball. Those were the people um, who imbibed, uh, and we owe to them the, the golden age of cocktails, which in our new Gilded Age, our new Gilded Age is the era of craft cocktails for the last 20 or years, but this Gilded Age owes the inventiveness, and for that matter, a good many of the ingredients to the first Gilded Age post-Civil War into World War I, before Prohibition struck. I mean, I got to say, it is embarrassing that I didn't really know when the cocktail was 
invented, you know, for someone who's drunk as many cocktails as I have. I couldn't have told you when they were invented, but it all makes sense now. Well, who wants to go to the library and look up cocktails when you can go to a lounge and order one, after all? But, you know, there is a a man named David Wandridge who has written a book called Imbibe, and it is a kind of Bible um, of of the cocktail history. And then others, a man named Curtis. There's a small library, and if, um, as I decided to do, if one is going to join the conversation, one has to decide what might be contributed. The other historians have dwelt very seriously on the nature, say, of one single malt versus another. My focus would be what occasions in the Gilded Age brought forth a cocktail? What clubs wanted a specific cocktail? What colleges would would wish to have a cocktail uh, for the reunions uh, that would that would in a sense reinforce the alumni solidarity? So we have cocktails named for for major figures and for some notorious figures as well, and for the clubs and for the colleges and from New York, the Manhattan. And from San Francisco, a very special brandy up from South America, the Pisco Sour. And then from New Orleans, the Ramos Gin Fizz, invented by Henry Ramos. And it requires so much shaking. Um, And it became so popular that his International Hotel uh, hired like a dozen muscular young men to shake those Ramos gin fizzes. So every one of our major cities, New York's Manhattan, uh, the one city that didn't really have a signature cocktail and had to kind of, kind of poach from other cities was Chicago. Hard-driving city, um, a shot and a beer chaser uh, for a manly man, and then given that it's Chicago and getting all ready for Al Capone during Prohibition, there was something called a Mickey Finn um, at a certain a certain um, Western-themed saloon. Uh, there was a bartender named Mickey Finn who hired young women, fetching young women, and he would put into customers' drinks as the young women stood by the customers, all men, certain drops, knockout drops, the men would find themselves the next morning in the back alley behind the establishment relieved of their valuables. So the, fic- the Mickey Finn became the, the name for a, for a knockout cocktail that you never wanted to drink, and it came out of Chicago. So it's, um, it's mentioned in my book, but it's not dwelt upon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of these are very famous, and others I had never heard of at all. And I think what was so interesting to me is like, you know, the book is basically half society pages, <laughs> half <laughs> cocktail recipes. You get a real sense of the kind of parties that were being thrown. Um, so, like, you know, what were the settings in which these drinks were being drunk? Could I just roll up to any old bar 
and grab a drink? Or was it something that was confined to, you know, the, the ballrooms of well, the Astoria? Well, f- first of all, as a woman, you dare not order a cocktail in any public place. Um, you, as a woman, were welcome to uh, enjoy champagne, wines with dinner every course. After dinner, you could enjoy liqueurs. Uh, this is not talking about immigrant women immigrants who had their own drinking patterns, their own self-made wines and brews. Uh, But as for distilled spirits, it was the gentleman only in such such venues as hotel cocktail lounges. Uh, The Waldorf, the Astoria, the Waldorf Astoria. And there was this brilliant manager named George Bolt. he uh, had the had the genius to install in the bar at the Waldorf Astoria uh, an after-hours oasis for the men of Wall Street. So we're talking about high flyers. Uh, we're talking about um, the the sort of the Bill Gateses, the Jeff Bezoses of their day. Um, they would, after a day on Wall Street and the stock exchange closed, they would go to the Waldorf Astoria, in one corner of which was a ticker tape still going. At one end of the bar, a bronze bear. At the other end, a bronze bull. In the middle, a little lamb. And they would conduct deals over drinks, many drinks. Uh, And Bolt's Bar was well-known all over the country. Kings of copper, kings of pork, kings of corn came from the West, and they found themselves to Bolt's Bar um, after hours. Now, for uh, parties of the 400, let's say at um, Mrs. Astor's ball. Dinner would be served at 1 a.m., 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. Gentlemen might then retire for cognac, for whiskey, the ladies to another room uh, for cigarettes and liqueurs in thimble-sized glasses. Now, private parties, um, cocktail parties, let's say, uh, in a Newport cottage of, say, 20-plus rooms. And you know, we can tour these so-called cottages, the mansions of the Gilded Age to this day, Uh, the Breakers, for example. In such private homes, there would be cocktails served, again, but only to the gentleman. At a a gentleman's club, uh, say the Washoe Club in Virginia City, Boomtown Silver City that was in Nevada, or the Bohemian Club to this day in San Francisco, um, or the Chicago Club, or the New York Athletic Club, the Union Club, the Union League Club, all these men's clubs all over the country, cocktails by all means. But for ladies, it was a secret. Secret, but not entirely unheard of, right? Uh, There was in New York a confectionery serving tea, serving pastries and chocolates next to a hotel. And it was said that 
the tea served in the cups in the afternoon had been brought through back back um, doors from the hotel to the back door of the confectionery and served to ladies secretly. It's probably a, a forerunner to the speakeasy decade we're going to have in the 1920s. Um, also, we do know that Colonel Mann, the publisher of a, of a salacious weekly newspaper called Town Topics, dished gossip just keeping him on the far side of suits for slander uh, and libel. Colonel Mann, weekly, in the summer season, good weather, would, um, would charter a Pullman car. All his editors, all his reporters, their wives, their girlfriends, and his daughter would go up to Lake George upstate New York and spend the long weekend and the mornings would start with scotch and soda and the colonel bellowing out, say ducks, ain't you dry? And it was his daughter with the shaker and the siphon and the swizzle sticks and the ice uh, and she was the bartender. That's pretty much the extent of our knowledge of imbibing ladies, but we do know at private parties, for instance, at Sarah and Pembroke Jones's seaside um, fine summer cottage, juleps were served, as they were also served uh, upstate at Saratoga, where it was said that gentlemen taking the waters, and they'd be in the waters, uh, would have juleps floated to them on cork trays. So there were many opportunities for imbibing, um, and, um, and we must think that more, more of the ladies nipped and sipped than the public record shows. Yeah, I mean, this all sounds a little excessive, you know? <laughs> I, I can well imagine why the, the temperance movement and prohibition might catch up with all of these tiplers and all of the bars. Um, how did this Gilded Age of Cocktails dovetail with the temperance movement and with, you know, anti-drinking crusaders of the day? That's so, that is a crucial issue. Let's blame it on the railroads or let's raise a glass to the railroads because we soon, after the Civil War ended in 1865, we had tens of thousands of, of miles um, of track throughout the country, short lines as well as major lines uh, from the from the Trans-Pacific from 1869 and on the New York Central, the Pennsylvania, the Santa Fe, and these various little spur lines as well. Well, here's the point. Um, just as um, uh, organizations, business groups could take the train to a convention city, uh, and enjoy their drinks during the conventions, and did, but so could increasingly those members of the Christian Temperance Union and the Anti-Saloon League, they too would travel in the trains. They would hear from Sunday at the pulpit the sermons inveighing against alcohol, hearing of how demon rum 
had ruined families, how workers on their way home with their wages in their pockets would stop at Whiskey Row and spend all the money. And by the time they got home to their families in the tenements, many children, their wives, mothers, desperate for the, for the food that would keep the table supplied, that would keep a roof over their heads with those wages. The wages were gone. These sermons all over the United States had, had their impact, and there were temperance groups forming and chapters of the Anti-Saloon League. And after all, we had a long history uh, of um, demon rum seeming to contaminate uh, our morals as a young nation. So we had this history of temperance and anti-alcoholic movements. And so the very trains that took the business groups and the vacationers and served liquors, cocktails on the train and across the, the ocean, for that matter, on the Cunard liners, the White Star liners, full cocktail menus, but those same transports conducted the pro-temperance um, um, advocates to the major cities, to Washington, D.C., to appeal to the Congress to do something about this problem that threatened the health of the United States of America. Mm. I mean, I think all of this talk of of alcohol being wicked and demon rum is kind of ironic in some ways because a lot of the elements of these cocktails, including bitters, which are in absolutely every drink, maybe half the drinks mm -hmm. or three quarters of the drinks in your book, um, you know, originally were apothecary cures. Yes. Bitters, um, sort of distilled from herbs and barks, um, in addition, uh, the medicines for ladies were heavily laced with alcohol, 55% uh, or even more. So there was, in the name of medicinal caretaking, uh, there was a lot of alcohol uh, being imbibed uh, under other names. So uh, it's interesting to, to, to look ahead just for a bit. When prohibition struck, uh, and here were the 20s. Um, Walgreens Drugstore initially had, I believe, 19 stores. When the examination of where alcohol was purveyed in this era of the speakeasy, drugstores were a major source. And by the end of the 20s, there were over 600 Walgreens drugstores in the United States. So your point about medicinal alcohol making its way into the broader culture is exactly on track. Well, how do you see cocktail culture today drawing on this heady era of the Gilded Age? You alluded to it earlier, but how do you see us hearkening back to that time right now? Well, we have we we always know that that what's been called the holy trinity of cocktails, the martini, the Manhattan, and the old fashioned, and those just continue on. Um, these days, the 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 lounge with the craft cocktail um, is expectedly a, a pricey affair. 
But there's something that's gone gone awry, I think, uh, that would be very disappointing to the Gilded Age bartender, who was himself uh, an impresario. They wore diamond studs, diamond cufflinks. Their fingers flashed with diamonds as they as they shook the shaker and the, used the siphon and and their fruit garnishes. These they thought of as works of, of a certain artistry. And they presented the cocktail exactly in that way, from artist or artisan to appreciative consumer. These days, we have, I think, two interruptions uh, of the aesthetics of the cocktail. One, in a good many establishments, there are screens. They may not be sound, but there may be sporting events or maybe a cooking show in the distance, but flickering with color, color and movement, attracting the eye. At the same time, the cell phones, people checking their phones, even when they are in a social relation with one another or if they're solo and just have ordered a nice drink, but they pull out the phone and the eye wanders to the screen. What gets sacrificed today easily is attention to the aesthetics of the cocktail itself, the glassware, and no cocktail should be served in a plastic glass. The glassware, crystal clear. If it's chilled, the look, the look of the drink. If it's garnished, the look of the garnish. The ice, crystal clear. The cocktail was intended to absorb the visual as well as the palate. So I think what is too often ignored these days uh, because of the screen, because of the phones, is the aesthetic appreciation of the drink itself. And as one bartender remarked, the drink is meant to be sipped in any civilized country. But I have to play devil's advocate here and say, a lot of these Gilded Age cocktails are classic, like the Holy Trinity has survived, but some of them are just like a little too obsessed with the newfangled sugars of the day or the newfangled inventions. And I feel like, you know, some Gilded Age proprietors might, you know, a lot of it was like this this reaching towards new technology, right? Like we have sugar available, we can do stuff on the railways, we can, you know, we can get ice and have ice readily available for everything. In a way, isn't it kind of like just embracing new technology? I think you're right. Um, it was a you know post post Civil War, uh, and in a in a social gathering, anybody who wanted to talk about Civil War batter, battles was not invited back. People didn't want to talk about it anymore. Here was this new age. Yes, electricity, as you're saying, uh, new inventions, the railroads, one of them, uh, electric lighting, the Vanderbilt Sons of the Commodore were one of the, the first electrified, had the first electrified houses in Manhattan. So there was, there was this, as you're saying, 
an exuberance and outreach. And I think you're absolutely right. Many of these cocktails exceed the bounds of good taste. They look <laughs> experimental. They, they taste... Uh, I've been asked, have you tried all these recipes? And my answer is, for God, no. And I would never have finished the book. And so, of course, those cocktails have slipped away, and we look at them, and, and, uh, and we are not intrigued to the point of concocting them. We are looking back at a time of excessive experimentation. Yeah. I, you know, like looking at the Waldorf Astoria, like I, I really love the Waldorf I would gladly take an Astoria after this, but the drink that follows the Waldorf Astoria yeah. sounds like a nightmare. It's Benedictine with whipped cream on top, and I, I don't even know how they got there. I know, so awful. I mean, I've just flipped open my book to the to this the Commodore cocktail. I have two recipes: Commodore Vanderbilt. Um, and not that he imbibed; he was too busy making money. But I look at this list: Bacardi rum, grenadine raspberry syrup. I mean, already you think, really? <laughs> really? Is, is that something to pour over French toast? I don't know. Um, but if we look at their clothing, um, especially ladies' clothing, those hats, what were they thinking? Um, it's very hard to, to look back and position ourselves in those times. But that's what um, uh, a little... A little uh, magnifier on that period is for me as I decided to to think of America's sociocultural history by way of its drinks. And I will tell you, there is a sequel, Jazz Age Cocktails, will be coming out for this holiday season. Well, what is your cocktail to sum up the Gilded Age? If you could distill all of these stories and all of these parties and all of these figures into one drink, just one, which would it be? I'll give you a, my personal preference, which is the old-fashioned, um, not made with the very finest rye or bourbon, which ought to be sipped um, like a liqueur, just an, Im, an amber inch and sip it over an hour, really enjoying it, but a pretty good rye or bourbon in which an orange should be macerated with that muddler and with the, with the uh, bitters uh, put in there. And when I'm served one that is amber clear, I know that the bartender has used syrup and that no orange has met the muddler. So for me, it would be the, the old-fashioned. But I think the prevailing drink that would sum up the Gilded Age from that time to the present would be the martini. Certainly better than the black velvet, which I thought I misread as equal part champagne and porter. I know. <laughs> I know. Beware. We have links in the show notes to Cecilia Tishy's new book, The Gilded Age of Cocktails, as well as to some of the other scholars of drink that she mentioned in the episode. So do check it out. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>